The Logbook.com's Retrogram Podcast is brought to you by CBS All Access. Say, if you're a Star Trek fan and you've been hiding under a rock, well, first, check to make sure you're not just hiding underneath a sleeping horda, because how awkward would that be? And once you've checked on that, hey, have you heard that Jean-Luc Picard is returning to TV in his own series? Star Trek Picard is coming to CBS All Access later this year. CBS All Access is already the home of the wildly successful series Star Trek Discovery, and they're launching an entire galaxy of Star Trek series in the months and years ahead, to say nothing of reviving the Twilight Zone, and undoubtedly, there's more to come. Plus, you can catch up on or just binge-watch any of the previous Star Trek series, NCIS, and any number of other favorites. And if you go to thelogbook.com slash retrogram, look for the CBS All Access ad and click on it to sign up for a free week of CBS All Access. If you sign up after that week, let me tell you, it helps a lot. Thelogbook.com gets to keep the lights on and keep the retrograms coming. Retrogram, revisiting TV futures from the past. An examination of yesteryear's television science fiction, fantasy, spy-fi, horror, and superhero shows. Commencing Retrogram. Retrogram number 8311. Nothing but time travel. The week of March 13, 1983. Welcome to Retrogram, a podcast from thelogbook.com where we travel back in prime time to one week in broadcast history. Watch all the sci-fi, superhero, fantasy, and horror shows from that week and try to figure out... Do they have anything to say that applies to those of us who are living in 1983's distant future? Are they worth watching today? Are the time-traveling characters from today's show sitting here in the future with us right now listening to what I say? Well, probably not, seeing as they're fictional characters and all, but it's amusing to think about. The week of March 13, 1983 wasn't the most eventful. Curious, really, that so many time-travelers popped up then and there. The previous week had seen the debut of the IBM PC-XT, the first major evolution of the original IBM PC architecture, in that it featured a built-in hard drive for the first time. And that was really the only major change. An inventor named Chuck Hull devised something that would be refined over the next couple of decades until it became known as the 3D printer. Martina Navratilova beat Chris Everett Lloyd twice to take home the Women's World Tennis Championship in Madison Square Garden. On the downside, we heard President Ronald Reagan refer to the Soviet Union as the evil empire for the first time in a public setting, which, you know, is surely the kind of talk that can only smooth over complex international differences of opinion. The following week, the week of March 21st, Reagan would keep ramping up that kind of rhetoric leading up to his announcement of the Strategic Defense Initiative, which later became known as Star Wars. Both the U.S. and the Soviets would conduct nuclear weapons tests by the end of the month, so for those of us who were 11 years old or thereabouts, just a nice little dollop of existential Cold War dread at the end of the month, punctuated only by the wondrous spectacle of the Motown 25th Anniversary Special. 
No wonder the time travelers congregated in the week of March 13, 1983. It really was the calm before the storm. February 1983 had seen the conclusion of the long-running TV series MASH, so our parents were probably too numb to worry about TV. And we? Well, we 80s kids got to travel back in time. Kind of like we're doing now. Episode 17, Destiny's Choice, aired Sunday, March 13, 1983, on NBC. The story so far. In the future, there's a legion of time travelers called Voyagers, who are sent to observe history, but aside from any minor corrections to compensate for their own presence, never interfere. And they're never meant to interfere in history beyond the year 1970, their time-traveling device of choice is known as an Omni, and its operating principle is simple. A red light means that history is off track and needs to be corrected, but a green light means the Voyager is ready to proceed to his next destination in time. But Phineas Bogg, he's no normal Voyager. For one thing, he's easily distracted by women, and for another, he accidentally wound up in 1982, where he met the recently orphaned Jeffrey Jones. When Jeffrey's dog grabbed Bog's time-traveling manual, Jeffrey tried to get it back and pulled on the manual so hard that when he had to let go of it, he fell out of a window. Bog resorted to using the Omni to save Jeffrey, but that means that Bog now has a time-traveling passenger and no manual for operating the Omni. Now Bog and Jeffrey are bouncing from historical event to historical event, setting history back on track, and maybe eventually trying to get Jeffrey home. I mean, really, we're 17 episodes in. I'm sure the kid's poor dog is probably getting kind of worried. Destiny's Choice All rise, court is now in session. And by now, I mean 1928. Bog and Jeffrey drop into the courtroom unannounced, just in time to see two armed men storm into the courtroom and rush the woman on the witness stand. Bog's gotta be Bog, and there appears to be a damsel in distress, so he takes out both men with one heroic flying kick, and... Cut? Oh. Yeah. Didn't notice the lights, or the camera, or the stage crew, or the fact that they're in Hollywood. Bog and Jeffrey get dragged off the set of Destiny's Choice, the first talkie, the first motion picture with sound. Bog is taken to wardrobe by studio security and is made to undress and get into normal clothes because they assume that his regular outfit was stolen from wardrobe. Because there's nothing regular about it. Oh, and that Omni with the flashing red light. Yeah, we're confiscating that and it's going back to the studio prop department. Thanks. One of the security guards lets slip that this isn't the first outburst on the set of one of Wild Frank's movies. The studio has been on the receiving end of several threats, and it's assumed that Bog and Jeffrey are the troublemakers. The actress on the witness stand who is amused by Bog's rescue attempt is Veronica Bliss, and she's fired. 
On her way out of the studio, she does Bog and Jeffrey a favor by talking the studio guards, one of whom is kind of sweet on her, into letting them walk free. After all, Veronica says, she has a date with the tall, hunky one. She invites Bog and Jeffrey to her place for dinner, but she's a little bit preoccupied by the fact that she may have just gone from a star of the silent screen back to being a waitress. When she mentions that the temperamental director who fired her, Wild Frank, is a former politician named Franklin Roosevelt, Bog and Jeffrey know they have a big problem, and suddenly we know why the Omni was showing a red light. Speaking of the Omni, Bog slips out to return to the studio to get the Omni back from the prop department. Bad idea. An explosion goes off in the studio, starting a fire, and as the only obviously unauthorized person there, Phineas Bogg is suspect number one. But even he is surprised when Veronica shows up to post his bail, and it turns out she knows who really set the bomb. Sam, the studio security guard, the one who first convinced Wild Frank to make a movie star out of Veronica. Sam's got it bad for Veronica, and now he's got it in for Roosevelt. Veronica sneaks the time travelers back onto the studio lot, and Bog sends Jeffrey to find the Omni because he has a feeling that dealing with Sam has just gotten a lot more dangerous. And indeed it has, as Sam tries to drop a plugged-in floodlight onto Roosevelt from the catwalk above the stage. Bog saves Franklin Roosevelt, and Veronica vouches for Sam, offering to go with him to explain his misguided, love-struck misdeeds to the head of the studio. Jeff's got the Omni, the light's green, and the time travelers slip back to New York in 1924, hoping to stop Franklin Roosevelt from mailing his first script to Hollywood, the one that kickstarts this whole movie career that he should never have had. While Jeffrey tries to intercept the script, which has just been picked up by the mailman, Bog poses as a radiator repairman to gain entry to the Roosevelt home. He overhears as Franklin opens a letter from one of his old friends from the world of politics, asking him to do the honors of announcing the nominee for president at the next Democratic National Convention. His wife, Eleanor, thinks it's a great idea to try to get back into that line of work. Franklin's overbearing mother, however, feels differently. You can't go up on a stage and make an announcement like that. Nobody wants to see a man in a wheelchair do that. No, really, she says that. As soon as she and Eleanor leave the room, Franklin Roosevelt asks Bog to help him get into his wheelchair, and while Bog brings the chair over to him, he doesn't help him slide from the bed into the chair. That's something Franklin has to do for himself. Bog suggests that Franklin use his leg braces and crutches instead, so he can stand for his speech. Coda, 1929. Hollywood again. Bog and Jeff are back at the studio lot, and talkies are a thing now, thanks not to Destiny's Choice, but to the jazz singer. They even run into Veronica Bliss, but she's not an actress, not in this timeline. She's part of the studio catering staff, and she's got to get back to work. FDR is back on course to become the President of the United States, and the time travelers, well, they're back to time traveling. The End Voyagers was created by James D. Perriott, who had been a Hollywood TV screenwriting fixture since the 70s. He also created Misfits of Science, Forever Night, Educating Matt Waters, The American Embassy, and Defying Gravity. He wrote episodes of The Six Million Dollar Man, The Invisible Man, Gemini Man, and The Bionic Woman, in addition to Voyagers and Misfits of Science, 
and we'll be discussing all of these shows in other installments of Retrogram, so remember that name, James D. Perriott. Sci-fi series that he wrote for in the 90s and later included Forever Night, Dark Skies, and Defying Gravity. Non-genre series he's written for include Hawaiian Heat, Tucker, Push Nevada, MDs, Threat Matrix, Grey's Anatomy, Ugly Betty, and Covert Affairs. The adult half of Voyager's starring duo was the late John Eric Hexum, whose star was most assuredly on the rise during the single-season run of Voyager's. Now, scheduled as it was on Sunday nights against the CBS news magazine Juggernaut 60 Minutes, Voyager's was never going to make it past the first season, but John Eric Hexum, being the very photogenic former male model that he was, he almost immediately found work in a made-for-TV movie called The Making of a Male Model, starring Joan Collins and Jeff Conaway. Not much of an acting stretch there. It was in October 1984, while he was on the set of a later series he starred in called Cover Up, that John Eric Hexum was playing with a prop gun between takes, pretending to play Russian roulette with one blank round still in the weapon. At that range, however, the blank still shattered his skull, and John Eric Hexum died as a result of his injuries just two years into what was shaping up to be a stellar acting career. Writer Jill Sherman is better known as Jill Sherman Donner, one of Voyager's producers. She had also been a producer and a creative consultant on The Incredible Hulk and would go on to produce Baywatch and Magnum P.I., along with a short stint as a creative consultant on Freddy's Nightmares. She wrote episodes of Incredible Hulk, Magnum, Freddy's Nightmares, Baywatch, Star Trek The Next Generation, and Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Director Paul Stanley was a Hollywood veteran, having started in the 1950s directing episodes of anthology series such as The Alcoa Hour, Goodyear Playhouse, Craft Theater, and The U.S. Steel Hour. He directed a Have Gun Will Travel episode that happened to have been written by an up-and-coming young writer named Gene Roddenberry in 1959, along with episodes of Peter Gunn, Route 66, Dr. Kildare, The Untouchables, Combat, Lost in Space, The Outer Limits, The Time Tunnel, Rat Patrol, Mission Impossible, Wild Wild West, Gunsmoke, Search, Circle of Fear, Kojak, Gemini Man, Six Million Dollar Man, Beyond Westworld, Knight Rider, the list goes on. That's a small sampling. We will undoubtedly be watching more of Paul Stanley's work in other installments of Retrogram. His positively huge TV directing career ended in 1987 with an episode of William Tell. Paul Stanley died in 2002 at the age of 80. Nicholas Pryor as Franklin Delano Roosevelt is another veteran of the golden age of TV. A fixture on the small screen since the 50s, he appeared in Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Another World, Coronet Blue, All My Children, Heart to Heart, Lou Grant, Eight is Enough, Trapper John M.D., Little House on the Prairie, The Powers of Matthew Starr, Dallas, Knight Rider, Amazing Stories, Murder, She Wrote, L.A. Law, Matlock, Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman, Nowhere Man, Port Charles, and NYPD Blue, to name just a few. He also had movie roles in The Happy Hooker, Damien, The Open 2, Airplane, Less Than Zero, and you might remember him from Risky Business, where he was the father of Tom Cruise's character. It's safe to say that the bulk of his work has been on TV, and he's put in appearances on series as relatively recent as Constantine and Nashville, 
and movies as recent as The Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 1. With some of the genre shows on his resume, it's a pretty safe bet that we will be running into Nicholas Pryor again in other installments of Retrogram. The same can be said of Ellen Geer, who had guest-starring roles in The Bionic Woman, Tales of the Unexpected, Star Trek The Next Generation, and especially the late 80s CBS series Beauty and the Beast, just the tip of the iceberg of a lengthy movie, stage, and TV career of her own. Now here comes the fun part. Anytime you're going to be doing time travel based on real historical events, we kind of have to do just a bare minimum of fact-checking. First off, in case you're wondering, the backstory for Franklin Wild Frank Roosevelt, yeah, that never happened. <laughs> Though he had already fallen victim to polio by 1921 when the first major symptoms presented themselves, Roosevelt never strongly considered leaving a life of public service, and he certainly didn't need Phineas Bogg to convince him to stand upright. Jeffrey's a little bit off in his history, too. Franklin Roosevelt wasn't the governor of New York in 1928, since 1928 was the election year, though he did spend that year campaigning for the office, which he wasn't sworn into until 1929. Still, I'll cut Jeffrey some slack here. Find me a kid that age today who can even tell you which President Franklin Roosevelt was, let alone the previous stops along the way of his political career. As for Destiny's Choice, that's also a bit of fiction. The first major motion picture with synchronized sound to emerge from Hollywood was Warner Brothers' 1926 film Don Juan, starring John Barrymore, while the first runaway success in the world of talkies also came from Warner's in the form of 1927's The Jazz Singer, starring Al Jolson. And once the timeline is restored, the episode does acknowledge The Jazz Singer, though it's a bit off the mark to cite The Jazz Singer as the first talkie. It was just the first really successful one. Still, in the face of Warner's raking in the box office cash with the jazz singer, the head of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, Irving Thalberg, declared that talkies were a good gimmick, but that's all. So there was some resistance to movies with sound. The episode isn't wrong about that. Bog wants to know why everybody panics just because he and Jeffrey show up on the set. Dude, he jumped a courtroom railing and knocked two men down with a flying kick. Might that have had something to do with it, you think? Here's a gem of wisdom for the ages from this episode. Sometimes, when you're frustrated and angry and there's no way to change the situation, then people get desperate and they do dumb things. Not entirely wrong. <laughs> okay, now let's talk about stuff that's entirely wrong. Sam the security guard. Let's just call this like it is. He's a stalker, and he winds up getting the girl. In fact, the girl's probably going to bail him out and try to help him keep his job, and in this day and age, it just reads a little bit weird. Still, since the time travelers have to make multiple jumps in this episode, the storyline is kind of bifurcated. The first half of it is spent on the Hollywood plot, and the second half is spent on talking Roosevelt back into politics. The problem there is that both halves of the story are compressed and oversimplified as a result. This also has a pretty seismic effect on the second half of the story dealing with Roosevelt and his paralysis due to polio. The story's attitudes toward Roosevelt's disability may be in line with the 1920s, but I cringe just a little bit at the sheer amount of ableism on display here. 
In real life, Roosevelt's polio was no secret, and while he did insist on trying to stand for public appearances, his wheelchair use wasn't exactly a state secret either, which makes a mockery of some elements of this story. A man in a wheelchair led the United States through some of its toughest challenges. Thank you very much. And so all the scenes of Boggs shoving some borderline abusive tough love down Roosevelt's throat to get him back on his feet feels way off. The attitudes on display might have been accurate for a depiction of 1924, but Roosevelt's own successes in real life make the patronizing 1983 attitudes seem just as outdated. It's a nice enough story, fine for family viewing hour, but I've found it really hard to let the script off the hook for that. Still, I will give Voyager's credit for one thing I had forgotten until I watched this one, that Mino Peluche, who played Jeffrey, would do end credit voiceovers, urging curious viewers to visit a public library to read up on the real histories of the real people and places depicted. I know the historical inaccuracies are there in service of telling a story, so I rest my case on this one. Doctor Who, Season 20, Episode 21, The King's Demons, Part 1, aired Monday, March 14, 1983, on BBC One in the UK. The story so far. The Doctor is a Time Lord on the run from his home planet Gallifrey, and his people, the Time Lords. He stole a TARDIS, a time machine bigger on the inside than out, and wanders the universe with his usually human companions, Writing wrongs, occasionally defending Earth from alien invasions at various points along the history of the human race, and trying to defeat evil wherever he finds it. His current sidekicks in the TARDIS are Tegan, an Australian airplane stewardess who stumbled into the TARDIS in 1981, thinking it was an actual police call box, and Turlow, a young man possibly of alien origin who was stranded on Earth in a boarding school and who was recently discovered to have been working for a powerful evil entity whose employee he chose to leave in order to spare the doctor's life. The King's Demons, Part 1 England, Medieval Times No, not the restaurant. I mean, Medieval Times. March 4th, 1215, to be precise. A feast is in full swing in honor of King John, who is less than appreciative of his host, Lord Ranulph who King John feels hasn't been giving generously enough to the war effort for the Crusades. Renolf's son, Hugh, can't take this sitting down, and he stands to defend his father's honor. That's enough for King John to call it a duel. Hugh will face off against the king's champion, Sir Gilles Estrem, on the morrow. Daybreak. The knights are suited up on horseback, the lances are drawn, and all are present. But before blood can be drawn... Hey, didn't we clear the pitch for this, or did a big, battered, blue police telephone box from several centuries in the future really just appear between the two combatants with a wheezing, groaning noise? From the box emerges the Doctor, Tegan, and Turlow, though the inopportune timing of their arrival 
doesn't seem to faze King John at all. He refers to the time travelers as his demons and invites them to sit at his side to watch the jousting match, which I guess is still taking place with the TARDIS right in the way. Hugh is knocked from his horse, and Sir Gilles dismounts his steed to end the match with his sword. The doctor begs King John for mercy on Hugh's behalf. There's clearly a victor and a vanquished here, he points out, so does there really need to be a killing? Since a surviving but defeated knight has lost his honor, Hugh is upset with the new arrivals, and he even picks a fight with Turlow, who goes sightseeing around Lord Ranulph's castle, until he is accosted by Hugh's guards and thrown into the dungeon. For the record, Lord Ranulph is relieved that his only heir is still in one piece, but his fealty to King John is sorely tested when Sir Gilles barges into his castle and takes Ranulph's wife, the Lady Isabella, hostage, as a reminder for Lord Ranulph as to who's in charge. Ranulph and his guard demand answers from the doctor. What is your loyalty to the king, and why are you dressed so strangely? And for once this isn't about the stick of celery. But as the interrogation settles down into an exchange of information, the doctor begins to theorize that the King John holding court at Ranulph's castle may not be King John. King John should be in London discussing with the Lords of the Realm a series of sweeping reforms that will eventually be known to history as the Magna Carta. Surprising absolutely no one, Tegan informs the doctor that this is one history lesson she's ready to cut short. During all this, however, the king's champion, Sergiel, is busy. For some reason, he has the doctor's TARDIS hoisted into a horse-drawn wagon and brought within the castle walls. And he stops a night on horseback, returning to the castle. Oh, it's Lord Ranulph's cousin, Sir Geoffrey de Lacy, who was thought to be in London. Get this, with the king. At a feast to which the time travelers are invited, but from which Turlow is absent since he's shackled up in the dungeon, with Lady Isabella and Hugh. Sir Geoffrey is hauled in front of the assembled masses by Sir Gilles, who has taken the liberty of having the dungeon's Iron Maiden brought to the great hall of the castle. And that's the medieval torture and execution device, by the way, not, not the band. To prevent any blood from being shed, the doctor suddenly challenges Sir Gilles to a duel, but not before telling Tegan that if this doesn't go well, she needs to find Turlow and get back to the TARDIS. Sir Gilles does all of the spinning, parrying, and thrusting, while the doctor specializes in dodging and ducking. The doctor still manages to disarm his opponent, who then points a far more advanced weapon than a sword at him, before dropping an apparently holographic disguise. Sir Gilles is the master, the doctor's deadly Time Lord rival. To be continued. By the way, if you like my musings on Doctor Who, I've got great news for you. I filled two rather large books with similar musings. You can get Vorp 1 and Vorp 2 from the logbook.com store or from Amazon in print and in ebook form. End of obligatory sales pitch. 
This week in 1983 contained both halves of this two-part Doctor Who story. A bit of a rarity, since Doctor Who tended to do four to six episodes for a given story. So I'm holding the trivia for later, so we can first summarize Doctor Who Season 20, Episode 22, The King's Demons Part 2, which aired on BBC One in the UK Tuesday, March 15, 1983. The Master has shown his hand. The Doctor is now certain that the King John watching over this fight is not really King John, but a tool that the Master is using to throw human history off track. When the Doctor refuses to slay the Master at the King's command, King John orders the Master to be put into the Iron Maiden. But in this particular dance of death, there will be no prayer for the dying, because the Iron Maiden is the Master's disguised TARDIS, so he's still a real live one. The Master is still running free. And I'm done with the Iron Maiden references. This whole thing has been planned by the Master from the beginning. The Doctor and Tegan venture into the dungeons, hoping to find the Doctor's TARDIS and free Turlow. They find Turlow, and the Doctor convinces Sir Geoffrey to ride out to London immediately to warn the real King John that he is being impersonated. That's the good news. Here's the bad news. The Master has already visited the dungeon, freeing Hugh and Lady Isabella to convince Sir Ranulph that he's a friend who should be given free reign in the castle. The Master has Sir Geoffrey shot by an archer in the castle tower. So much for warning the real King John. And yet, the Doctor hears King John singing in his chamber, only to find a gleaming silver robot called Chameleon. The Master is there, too, and Chameleon is under his telepathic control, impersonating King John at the Master's whim. Sir Ranulph and Hugh burst into the King's chambers to arrest the Doctor, who they believe is responsible for Sir Geoffrey's death, only to witness the two Time Lords fight a telepathic battle of wills to control Chameleon. The Doctor gains the upper hand, and Chameleon ceases to be King John, and instead now looks like... Tegan. It's clear now that the King was never at Sir Ranulph's castle in the first place. The Doctor and his friends spirit Chameleon away in the TARDIS, leaving the Master to face some tricky explanations and to watch his plan to derail human history go to pieces before escaping in his own TARDIS. Tegan is a little bit offended that Chameleon has temporarily taken her form and, surprising absolutely no one, stamps her foot and threatens to leave the TARDIS crew until the Doctor convinces her to stick around long enough to see the natural wonder known as the Eye of Orion. The End The King's Demons Part 1 was the 600th consecutive episode of Doctor Who's original run from 1963 through 1989. The original series ended just shy of 700 episodes total. Both halves of the story were written by Terence Dudley. Terence Dudley was the showrunner of the BBC's earthbound early 70s sci-fi scare piece Doomwatch, which we'll be discussing in other installments of Retrogram, and he went on to be the producer of Terry Nation's grim post-plague 70s series Survivor. He also wrote and directed several episodes of Survivor, but he and Nation had a serious falling out over the usual creative differences. Nation wanted Survivors to be grittier and darker. Dudley wanted a more hopeful tone. Dudley directed all four episodes of the Doctor Who story Megloss, which starred Tom Baker, as well as directing an episode of the BBC sci-fi anthology Out of the Unknown, and episodes of Calditz's Secret Army to serve them all my days 
Triangle, and All Creatures Great and Small, where he almost certainly worked with Peter Davison. He also wrote four episodes of All Creatures, as well as writing two other adventures for The Fifth Doctor and Friends, Four to Doomsday and Black Orchid, both of them from the previous season in 1982. Terrence Studley also wrote the script for 1981's first-ever attempt at a Doctor Who spin-off, K-9 and Company, which we will almost certainly cover in another retrogram. Terrence Dudley also has a single credit as an actor. He is the poor car driver who gets attacked by rodents in the Doom Watch episode Tomorrow the Rat, which Dudley also wrote. You really need to give yourself a better Hitchcock cameo there, Terrence. Terrence Dudley died on Christmas Day 1988, following a lengthy battle with cancer. Tony Virgo is a workhorse of British TV. I went to see what his directing credits looked like on IMDb, other than The King's Demons here, and I found, get this, 73 episodes of the primetime soap EastEnders, 81 episodes of the police drama The Bill, as well as episodes of Dalziel and Pasco, and the adaptation of The Scarlet Pimpernel. His most recent directing credit was in 2002. He directed a whopping 92 episodes of the British hospital drama Peak Practice. Now, I mentioned Doctor Who stories lasting six episodes before. That practice was eliminated by the incoming producer John Nathan Turner, who took over in 1980 for Tom Baker's final season and decided that he'd rather replace six-part stories with a four-parter and a two-parter. There had been only one other two-part story in the history of Doctor Who, prior to Nathan Turner's 10-year stretch as the showrunner, and that had been in the 1960s during the first Doctor's era. During Peter Davison's turn in the TARDIS, for whatever reason, John Nathan Turner asked the BBC to schedule two episodes of Doctor Who a week, on Mondays and Tuesdays, so a four-part story would take only two weeks to unfold. Prior to this, it was a decades-long tradition that Doctor Who aired on Saturday evenings, so this was quite an unusual change, and as often happens when you change things, it wasn't a well-received change in some quarters of British fandom. Worse yet, it put Doctor Who up against some stiffer competition than it had faced in the past, including the UK run of Buck Rogers in the 25th century, leading to the perception that the series' ratings were in decline after the departure of Tom Baker, a perception that would prove to be quite hazardous to the show's health even after it resumed a schedule of one episode per week. Along with returning to weekly episodes in 1985, John Nathan Turner would later opt to distribute the number of episodes differently. Each of the Seventh Doctor's seasons had two three-part stories instead of one six-parter. Nathan Turner was the only showrunner of Doctor Who, either the classic or modern series, ever to have had a hand in casting three different Doctors, Peter Davison, Colin Baker, and Sylvester McCoy, and arriving as he did at the tail end of Tom Baker's seven years in the TARDIS, he's the only showrunner to have worked with four Doctors outside of big round-number anniversary specials. The end of John Nathan Turner's run as the producer of Doctor Who was the end of Doctor Who, at least for a few years. In the Radio Times, the BBC's self-published radio and TV listings magazine, the role of Sir Gilles was credited to James Stoker, that's an anagram for Master's Joke. Oh, and Sergio's last name, Estrom, which was never actually said on screen, that is also an anagram of Master. 
It's not the only time a made-up name disguised the master's presence in the Radio Times listing, and it's important to point out that this appeared in the magazine only and not on screen, where Ainley was always credited as the master. Anthony Ainley was totally in on these jokes in the credits, and he loved them. By all accounts, he loved playing the master. His father was famed Shakespearean actor Henry Ainley, a much-admired contemporary and mentor of the likes of Sir John Gilgood and Laurence Olivier. And by the 1980s, Anthony Ainley was in a position financially where he no longer needed to work unless he just wanted to. And he turned down many a role so he'd be available to play the master on Doctor Who, a role he held from 1981 through the final episode of the original series in 1989. He would make numerous public appearances, especially for charity, in character. And Doctor Who script editor Eric Sayward said that Ainley would even leave answering machine messages in character, complete with his trademark evil master laugh. So this is an actor who loved his role, and I have to give him full marks for that. Even knowing that it's him as Sergile, the makeup and the outrageous accent make him pretty close to unrecognizable. I love the little exchange between the Doctor and Tegan at the second feast of Part 1. Really, for a single episode of Doctor Who, Part 1 of The King's Demons must have had quite a feast component in its production budget, because there are two feasts on screen. But during this one, the Doctor wonders why King John, or whoever is standing in for King John, considers the TARDIS team to be his demons. To which Tegan replies, well, you could be the devil. And the Doctor simply responds with this withering look. Also, holy Leela, full marks to Tegan for just straight up chucking a knife at the master at the beginning of part two. Now, this may seem like conduct unbecoming for a TARDIS traveler, but it requires a bit of context. Tegan was aiming for the master's weapon, not his face, although it seemed like she got pretty close to his face by the time he caught the knife. You know, as far as story background in-universe, the master did murder her Aunt Vanessa, her last surviving close relative, in Tom Baker's 1981 swan song, Legopolis, which was Tegan's first episode. To her credit, she's more than a little bit disgusted at the thought of the Master being impaled within the Iron Maiden. I also really liked Turlow's final word with the Master late in episode two, I've had quite enough of you, whoever you are. I mean, come on, Turlow got himself out from under a deal with the devil, or something very much like it in the previous story. The Master really has to seem like a campy, mincing idiot in comparison. I'm not sure I've ever liked Companion's reaction to the Master more than this, at least not until we get to the Seventh Doctor's sidekick, Ace. Chameleon also requires a little context as well. The Master's previous appearance saw him marooned on the planet Zarephath, a scenario from the previous season's finale, Time Flight, that didn't seem to leave a lot of room for him to escape. But apparently, Chameleon was built by one of the warring factions on that planet and fell under the Master's control, allowing him to escape. The 80s Doctor Who stories involving the Master were particularly bad about leaving the Master stranded in impossible situations that he had a habit of escaping harmlessly off-screen before his next appearance. Now, that's the in-universe background. The real Chameleon is a whole different story, and he actually existed prior to his appearance on Doctor Who. Chameleon was the creation of Chris Padmore and Mike Power, who were collectively known as CPC or CP Cybernetics. Chameleon originally had a silver skin to cover his exposed joints and parts, 
but was stripped down and redressed to look more alien and robotic for his three Doctor Who appearances. Chameleon was an actual robot which could, theoretically, walk, sit, turn its head, move its mouth, and again in theory could eventually be taught to perform more complex tasks such as picking up objects. It even had its own voice, though that voice was not heard here. It was invented to be a sales aid, kind of a robot replacement for a shop window dummy. But Doctor Who's showrunner, John Nathan Turner, envisioned Chameleon as a new companion while it was still in the research and development stages. Since it was a shape-shifting robot in Doctor Who lore, it was built into the story that the very delicate robot wouldn't be getting that much screen time at first, but plans to give the Chameleon robot more screen time didn't pan out. One tragic reason for this, the man behind Chameleon's computer control and operating system, Mike Power, died in a boating accident, leaving virtually no documentation for controlling the real robot. A short scene shot for one of the following season's episodes, just to remind the audience the Chameleon was lurking somewhere aboard the TARDIS, was left on the cutting room floor, meaning the Chameleon had only one further appearance after his debut story in the 1984 story Planet of Fire, which delivered the robot an on-screen mercy killing. In a documentary on the DVD release of The King's Demons, Doctor Who script editor Eric Seward said, K-9 was like working with Laurence Olivier by comparison. Now, the Doctor gets knighted in this story. Kind of. There's a whole scene about it, and the knighting ceremony is performed, but let's not start calling him Sir Doctor just yet, because it's not the real King John. Oh, and the Doctor knows the whole time that King John is under the Master's control and seems to be bracing himself for being beheaded rather than knighted, because, you know, sword right there at neck level, one shoulder, then the other. He does a really distrustful stare for the entire scene. It's a really nice touch on Peter Davison's part. I'm not sure Davison has ever really gotten his due for some of the great acting he does without saying a single line. I have a love-hate relationship with Jonathan Gibbs and Peter Howell's music score for this story. On the upside, those are real lutes and drums you're hearing, so King John's, and I'm using air quotes there, really disturbing little ditty about continuing the Crusades as bloodily as possible, and I'm assuming the bloodily is even a word, really does seem like a real thing. On the downside, you're hearing these acoustical instruments against a very 1980s synthesizer backing, and it's just a weird mashup of instrumentation. Still, since we're barely 15 minutes into the episode when the Doctor drops the bomb that King John may be an imposter, allow me to summon the kind of BS that served me well in college music interpretation class and explain it away as a musical signal that King John is also synthetic. Again, as disturbing as King John's song is, I love how Gerald Flood sings it. If you're a soundtrack fan like I am, there's a suite of music from The King's Demons that has been available since a vinyl release in the early 80s, and it has resurfaced several times on CD. I will include a link to the logbook.com store's vast selection of Doctor Who soundtracks, old and new, on the show page at thelogbook.com slash retrogram. I really liked the two-part stories during Peter Davison's era of Doctor Who. If you glued them together like PBS frequently did for the American audience in the 1980s, you wound up with a nice little self-contained story about the same length as a modern Doctor Who episode. Who is really doing the time traveling here?
so funny thing. I went into this thinking that it was a three-show week. Easier than four or five shows, right? And I didn't quite have the retrogram timeline ready yet. I didn't have everything inputted on the timeline. Then I double-checked against the logbook itself, and, um, oh, it's a four-show week after all. And it kind of blows my time travel theme right out the doors of the TARDIS. Oops. But that's okay, because it lets me talk about one of my all-time favorite fantasy shows on TV. You can keep your Nightwalkers, your Starks, and your Iron Thrones, because I've got Wizards and Warriors Episode 4, Night of Terror, which aired Saturday, March 19, 1983, on CBS. The story so far. Medieval times. No, not the restaurant. Uh, I already said that, didn't I? I mean the ancient kingdom of Camerand, a noble and beautiful place which is ruled over by kindly but no-nonsense King Baldorf. Defending Camerand from all foes is the brave Prince Eric Greystone, who the king hopes will marry the slightly ditzy Princess Ariel. With his well-meaning but clumsy squire, Marco, Greystone finds himself most frequently protecting the kingdom of Camerand from the evil Prince Dirk Blackpool of the neighboring kingdom of Cartea. Blackpool has an ace up his sleeve in the form of a wizard named Vector, from whom Blackpool has stolen a magical monocle. As long as he holds this enchanted item hostage, Blackpool basically holds Vector's leash and can command him to deploy his dark magic to try to destroy Greystone, his hated arch-enemy. Vector isn't thrilled with this arrangement, but he's already an evil wizard, so he goes along with it for now. Night of Terror Prince Eric Greystone is facing one of his biggest challenges, on his own with no Marco in sight. Is it an army of evil mercenaries? Nope. Is it a dragon? No. Is it Princess Ariel wanting to go on a picnic? Yeah. And she's brought her puppy! Worse yet, the spot that she's picked, well, it gives Greystone the screaming heebie-jeebies. It's on the outer edge of the grounds of Castle Karanosh, a haunted castle, at least according to legend. And as luck would have it, after being scolded for sampling some of the contents of the picnic basket, the puppy takes off and makes a beeline for that castle. Fortunately, the door is closed, but, oh, oh, wait a minute. The wizard Vector is hiding out in the dense forest growth nearby, and helpfully opens the door so the puppy and his owners can venture into the castle. Not really helping there, Vector. Ariel follows her dog into the castle, and Greystone, well, he draws his sword and follows her. As abandoned haunted castles go, it's nicely appointed, and Ariel wants to look in every nook and cranny. There are clothes and jewels and valuables all over the place. Gee, why would they have just been left there? Greystone doesn't want to stay and find out. Let's get the dog and go. Just as fast as he ran into the place, the dog runs outside, and then gates slam closed over every door and window on the ground floor of the castle. Greystone and Ariel are trapped, with the sound of deafening and decidedly evil laughter ringing in their ears. Vector reports back to Prince Blackpool. His arch-enemy is as good as dead. Blackpool's pretty happy about this and breaks out a bottle of wine to celebrate. But you know, he just isn't as thrilled with this news as he thought he would be. He wants to kill Greystone himself. He wants Vector to send him to the haunted castle to kill Greystone himself. Not gonna happen, Vector says, 
unless you give me back my magical monocle. But that would grant Vector his freedom, so <laughs> that's not going to happen either. Tell you what, we'll play this weird board game. If Vector wins, he gets his monocle back. If Blackpool wins, well, he gets Vector's cool, evil-looking hat. And he gets to keep the wizard under his thumb. The only problem is, Blackpool is going to play dirty, and by now, they're also both sloppy drunk. Back in Castle Karanash, things are going not well. A treasure chest that seemed empty minutes ago is now crawling with live tarantulas. Oh, there's a cobra! There's the obligatory skeleton that seems to be moving around on its own. Y why didn't this episode air at the end of October? The dog wanders back to King Baldorf, who dispatches Marco to follow the pup back to where he last saw Ariel and Greystone, because they're just a little bit overdue to come back from their picnic, seeing as it's now night and all. Greystone hears a voice calling his name from behind a door, but the doorway is filled in with bricks. Greystone attacks the brick wall with his sword until the door can be opened, and then Marco appears. But it's not Marco. It looks like Marco. It sounds like Marco. And it draws its sword and tries to kill Greystone, very unlike Marco. And the nightmare continues from there. Ariel is nearly killed by illusionary versions of both of her parents and Prince Blackpool. When the real Marco shows up, she doesn't believe it's him. She asks him to drop his sword, which he does. And then she knocks him unconscious just to be sure. But the killer illusions keep coming for her. She takes to sticking everyone she sees with her hat pin. If it's one of the castle's ghostly illusions, it explodes. If it's not, well, <laughs> somebody gets a poke in the butt with something sharp, but hey, no harm, no foul, right? Ariel flees to one of the castle's highest towers, which is admittedly not a great place to run if you're cornered, because there's nowhere to go but down. But at least the windows haven't been closed off up here. Greystone bursts in, followed by Greystone. A furious sword fight ensues, during which one Eric Greystone is knocked out of the window, and the other winds up with Ariel in his arms. Oh, wait, that's the wrong one. Luckily, the real Greystone caught himself before he fell, and dispatches his evil twin once and for all. Marco shows up and says he got rid of the rest of the ghosts. A big sigh of relief, and... Roll credits! Did they get to leave the castle? Or are we all still stuck here next week? Nah. Wizards and Warriors is the creation of TV writer-producer Don Rayo, who is probably much better known as the creator of the series Blossom in the 1990s. Don had two key influences at work with this show, meaning Wizards and Warriors, not Blossom, namely his kid's fascination with Dungeons and Dragons and William Goldman's novel The Princess Bride. He even consulted with Goldman personally to try to match the tone of The Princess Bride without copying it outright. Now keep in mind this was 1983, ten years after the book was first published, and Goldman was still trying to shop The Princess Bride around as a movie script, so while that project was turned around in Hollywood development hell, he really had nothing to lose by consulting on a similar project. The show was produced for CBS by Warner Brothers, which had one handy budget-saving side effect. Anytime there was a big battle between armies of knights on horseback, Warners would just dip into the archives and pull footage that had been shot by John Borman for his 1981 film Excalibur and drop it in the middle of this comedy series. 
Wizards and Warriors has a lot in common with another favorite comedy series of mine, ABC's Police Squad. Both of them were comedies with no laugh track to let the audience know that something funny had happened, and they really depended on the intelligence of the audience to keep up with the straight-faced, dry wit that coursed through the show's bloodstream from beginning to end. I think both of these shows would have fared much better in Britain. Wizards and Warriors would have made a nice companion piece for the first season of Black Adder. As a result, however, because this show arrived at a time when it seemed like you could nearly always overestimate the intelligence of the American viewing public at large, Wizards and Warriors has one other bit of common ground with Police Squad. It was on the air for mere weeks before being cancelled. It was a bit of a long shot anyway, as it was already a mid-season replacement for the recently cancelled Bruce Boxleitner series, Bring Him Back Alive. By the way, if the title Wizards and Warriors sounds somewhat familiar, this wasn't the first use of it, or the last. Mattel already had that name locked down at the time that the series was devised, having sub-licensed it from Reston Publishing. From there, the trail gets even murkier. Reston published a solo role-playing game book under the Wizards and Warriors title in 1982, and that, in turn, was a reprint of two previously published books based on an obscure paper-and-dice fantasy role-playing game called Adventures in High Fantasy that Reston had bought from its author, Jeffrey Dillow, who had been developing it throughout the 1970s as an alternative to Dungeons & Dragons while he attended Indiana University. It would appear that Mattel did nothing further with that brand name, but since it was a relatively recent acquisition, Warner Brothers still had to get permission to use the name, and some money probably changed hands as a result. So if you ever run into the Wizards and Warriors solo role-playing book, it does at least have some Jim Steranko cover artwork going for it, even if it really has nothing more in common with the TV series than its name. By the time Wizards and Warriors resurfaced as the title of a game published by acclaim for the Nintendo Entertainment System in 1987, neither Mattel nor Vestum Publishing were acknowledged in the legalese in that game's manual, so evidently they had allowed their legal interest in the title to lapse, and so had Warner Brothers. The star of Wizards and Warriors was Jeff Conaway. Yes, Kanicki! Don Rayo needed an actor who really latched on to the combined drama and comedy of his new series, and Conaway was the actor who managed to walk that tightrope from end to end in the auditions. But his casting didn't come without some baggage. Conaway had risen to public prominence in both the Broadway and Hollywood incarnations of Greece, and he had since moved on to the sitcom Taxi. But during that show's third season, Conaway was fired for a persistent drug habit, which he'd been battling since his teens. After Wizards and Warriors was canceled eight weeks in, Conaway would continue to work in TV and movies throughout the 80s, though his early 90s resume seemed to be painfully loaded down with the kind of movies the Cinemax would show at 2 or 3 in the morning, if you get my drift. Fortunately, things turned around for him a little bit, and a lot of you sci-fi fans will of course remember that he became a regular on Babylon 5 in the mid to late 90s as security officer Zach Allen. After struggling with drug addiction in the very public venue of the VH1 series Celebrity Rehab for several seasons, Jeff Conaway died in 2011. Playing his faithful but out-of-shape squire Marco was an actor well acquainted with the comedy sidekick role Walter Olkowitz. Walter had also been on Taxi as a guest star and was a regular on such short-lived series as The Last Resort, Partners in Crime, Grace Under Fire, 
and Dolly, an attempted revival of the variety show format starring Dolly Parton, which aired during 1988 while Hollywood writers were on strike. Walter also played the role of Jacques Renault in the original Twin Peaks series and its 1992 movie spin-off Twin Peaks, Fire Walk With Me. He returned for the 2017 Showtime revival of Twin Peaks as well, in what you might say was a related role. He guest starred on The Rockford Files, Heart to Heart, Alice, Barney Miller, The Love Boat, New Heart, Riptide, Designing Women, Falcon Crest, Family Ties, Who's the Boss, and even the 1990 attempt to bring The Flash to TV. Sadly, Walter has been less of a fixture on our screens since 2000, when a knee surgery robbed him of a great deal of his mobility. Julia Duffy is no stranger to being a series regular herself. She had a lengthy run on the 1970s soap The Doctors and was in nearly every episode of New Heart, which ran from 1983 through 1990. So she basically went from the cancellation of Wizards and Warriors directly into one of those career-making roles that only comes along once every so often. She appeared in just one season of Designing Women as Allison Sugarbaker, you know, the other Sugarbaker sister, and we will probably catch up with Julia again, because not only are there seven other episodes of Wizards and Warriors, but she guest-starred on Voyagers as well. Wizards and Warriors brought Canadian actor Duncan Regeer into the public eye as the handsome but thoroughly evil Prince Blackpool. Regeer would become a frequent flyer in other sci-fi and fantasy shows, from two Star Trek spin-offs, including Next Generation and Deep Space Nine, to the very brief weekly V series. Richard Libertini was originally lined up to play the part of the evil wizard Vector, but he backed out of the role with just hours to go before production started on the pilot. Now, this meant that the runner-up for Vector, New Zealand-born actor Clive Reville, got the part by default. We will undoubtedly run into Clive again, since he guest-starred on The New Avengers, the animated series based on the arcade game Dragon's Lair, the late 80s Twilight Zone revival, and the original Transformers series where he was the voice of Kickback. Fans of 90s TV sci-fi have seen him guest star on Star Trek The Next Generation, Babylon 5, and Lois and Clark. But perhaps Clive's best-known part on the big screen has now been edited out of existence, thanks to George Lucas's propensity for changing things. Clive Revel was the original voice of the Emperor in The Empire Strikes Back, though Lucas's 1990s re-edit of the original trilogy replaced Clive with Ian McDiarmid, who was the Emperor in the rest of the Star Wars films. The episode was directed by Bill Bixby. As an actor, Bill needs no introduction. He was a reliable, dependable Hollywood favorite, having been a regular on My Favorite Martian, The Courtship of Eddie's Father, The Magician, Goodnight Beantown, and of course we'll be talking about Bill Bixby a lot whenever Retrogram covers The Incredible Hulk. But Bill had been directing long before he was hulking out. He was behind the camera, as well as in front of it, for eight episodes of The Courtship of Eddie's Father, and one installment each of The Magician and The Incredible Hulk, as well as two of the Hulk TV movies that aired after the series proper. He directed two other Wizards and Warriors episodes, as well as episodes of Mannix, Charlie's Angels, Mr. Merlin, and the mercifully brief MASH spin-off Walter, you know, the one that told us that Radar became a cop when he returned to the States. Don Rayo was a big fan of Bixby's directing work and hired him to direct no fewer than 30 half-hour episodes of Blossom, but by this time Bill had been diagnosed with cancer, had undergone treatment, and his cancer was in remission, but as he continued his work on Blossom, the cancer reasserted itself, 
and Bixby actually tried to keep this information under wraps. He finally had to fess up to the cast and crew of Blossom and said that he planned to keep working until he couldn't. He made good on that promise, by the way. Bill Bixby died in late 1993, less than a week after completing his last episode of Blossom. Night of Terror is more obviously comedic than most episodes of Wizards and Warriors, thanks to writer Bill Richmond, who had written for the Jerry Lewis show in the 1960s, Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In, The Carol Burnett Show, and The Tim Conway Show, on which he was also a producer. He wrote one other Wizards and Warriors episode and was a producer on this series as well. Don Rayo later hired him as a writer and producer on Blossom. Finally, this is going to be a retrogram where I talk a lot about the music, isn't it? But for very good reason this time. Although Lee Holdridge, who later scored such shows as Beauty and the Beast, is still on board for this episode, as he is most installments of Wizards and Warriors, he has some backup here, according to the end credits, a young Alf Clausen. Now, where have you heard that name before? Prior to this episode of Wizards and Warriors, Alf had scored a single documentary feature, A Love Letter to Jack Benny. But after Wizards and Warriors, Alf Clausen scored episodes of Fame, Partners in Crime, and The Magical World of Disney, and finally got his major TV scoring break in 1985, racking up 63 music credits on Moonlighting. And he started working on ALF in 1986, starting with that show's pilot episode and scoring virtually the entire series. Both of those shows tended toward the kind of very brief pieces of light jazz that permeate sitcoms, but that's not Alf Clausen's biggest credit. He adopted an even wackier style to score 578 episodes of The Simpsons, beginning with the very first Treehouse of Horror episode in 1990. Now, there's a lot to love about the lunchtime conversation between the king and the queen in this episode. First off, the table is so long that they have to shout the entire conversation, which is kind of funny. There's also some real pathos about couples growing older and growing apart. It's a really deft touch of combining comedy and something a bit more serious than comedy. It's part of why I love this show. There's much more obvious comedy as the episode explores the question of what villains and their henchmen do for fun in their spare time when they're not terrorizing the populace at large. As it turns out, Blackpool and Vector really have no common ground at all. None. They don't like each other's jokes, and as for board games, eh, not much common ground there either. Now, what's even funnier is that the board game they are playing has multicolored cylinders that were probably a new thing in 1983, unless you, like me, were a Cub Scout doing a lot of camping at the time. Yeah, the game pieces are garden variety glow sticks. So clearly, Vector's favorite leisure time activity is to go to raves, but he just doesn't think that information will sit well with his boss. I respect his decision. When Ariel first sets foot in the castle, man, by TV standards, really by any standards, that is a very nicely done map painting. Now, sure, if you pause the DVD, you can find the edges of the glass painting where there's a gap for the camera to shoot through. But here's the thing. Most of us, we didn't have DVDs in 1983. DVDs didn't exist. But I'm going to say most of us didn't even have a VHS or Betamax deck because those were still a high-end luxury item in 1983. I know there wasn't a VCR in my house until 1986, and... That was back when a VHS recorder ran you close to 300 bucks. So by just about any measure, that's a great matte painting, and Bill Bixby lines up the shot and lights it perfectly. 
Now, there's an effect later on where Greystone's head rotates 360 degrees because it's not really him. That effect is not done quite so well, so swings and roundabouts. The scene between Ariel and the image of Blackpool is just straight-faced comedy gold. So why would I lie? Well, with you, it's probably a hobby. This episode really kind of run-of-the-mill Halloween episode material. And that makes the March air date really weird. Every Halloween episode of any show you've ever watched, every trick from every one of those episodes, they're all here in this one episode in the middle of March. That's weird. But this show is always shot well, and as for the castle setting, well, as I already mentioned, Wizards and Warriors had at its disposal every piece of medieval kit in the Warner Brothers scenery docks and costume and prop warehouses. The show never quite manages to look cheap, and the cast is really good. I was a big fan of Jeff Conaway's work, and I think this might have been his best role. Now, I'll probably run into some resistance there, because he was Bobby Wheeler for a lot longer than he was Prince Eric Greystone. Hell, he was Zach Allen on Babylon 5 even longer than he was Bobby Wheeler. And yes, for some folks, he will forever be Kanicki. Wizards and Warriors, on the other hand, should have gone on long enough to be what he was remembered for because he was so good in this role. Something about the long hair just really suited Jeff Conaway. Even in this goofy episode that sticks every very special Halloween episode trope you can imagine into the blender and then hits the puree button, the reason the episode doesn't seem any goofier is because Conaway and Julia Duffy were that good. Dr. Phineas Bogg, both time travelers with a penchant for messing with history to ensure that it stays on course. And then there's Prince Eric Greystone, a swashbuckling hero who has plenty to deal with in his own time. Which one of them is better at their job? And really by that I mean who got better scripts. Let's tackle the time travel shows first since there's an obvious basis for comparison there. While airing on different continents, both Voyagers and Doctor Who were intended as shows for family viewing time, that early evening time slot during which Mom and Dad wanted to watch TV, and the kids weren't yet in bed. Us pesky kids. The upshot of that is that these are both fairly safe stories, nothing terribly edgy. And by the end of the Doctor Who two-parter, one guy has finally gotten killed, so it's a bit more edgy than Voyagers. I'm not going to try to stack up time travel stories on the basis of which is more realistic, because time travel, so far as we can tell from our vantage point in the present day, is not a real thing. I will say that I have a preference for the limited scope of the Doctor Who story. It happens in an isolated location affecting a limited number of people, and the attempts to change history have a very specific focus. As the Doctor puts it, the Master is trying to usurp the future of parliamentary democracy. Though changing history here could have widespread effects, the threat is contained and literally whisked away in the Doctor's TARDIS, leaving a bunch of confused and, yeah, it's got to be said, primitive people 
wondering what on earth just happened while the real King John is safe and sound in London. It's a nicely calculated little piece, and it sort of manages the audience's expectations of what they're about to see unfold. The episode of Voyagers that aired during the week of March 13, 1983, on the other hand, is kind of an exercise in going big with the historical changes. The characters are concerned with making sure that FDR makes it to the White House, but it's never expressed or explored what the potential ramifications might have been without FDR around to shepherd the United States through the Great Depression and World War II, because the story takes place before those events unfold, and also probably because those ramifications are huge. They're probably too big to tackle in an hour of family hour TV, so it's not much of a surprise that they didn't go there. But without putting the stakes on the table, it's an abbreviated chase followed by an abbreviated period of physical therapy a la Phineas Bogg. It's the kind of condescending attitude of that last half of the Voyagers episode that leaves an unpleasant aftertaste. Surely President Roosevelt is a towering testament to the fact that a physical condition neither defines nor devalues you. If the episode had bothered to speak to that, I would have liked it a lot better. How strongly you feel about that probably dictates which of those two stories comes out as your favorite. I want to say that the Doctor Who two-parter was my clear favorite, but I've been a Doctor Who fan since before Voyagers was even dreamt of. and I've written books about it, and so maybe I have to recuse myself from declaring a favorite here, because I'm very likely biased. Wizards and Warriors, on the other hand, that one is just pure fun. It's a criminally underrated show that should have had a much better shot at the limelight. Really, if you think about it, both of the time travel adventures are essentially about keeping the future of democracy on course. It'd be great if the Doctor or Phineas Bogg or, hell, even Prince Eric Greystone could put in an appearance, say, right about now? Maybe now. No? Okay. The Retrogram Podcast was researched, written, and hosted by Earl Green. The show's theme music was composed and performed by Jazar and licensed under Creative Commons. You can find his work at betterwithmusic.com and at freemusicarchive.org. Free Music Archive is also home to lots of other great music. Additional music in this episode was by Philip Gross, also licensed under Creative Commons. A huge thanks to the logbook.com's Patreon supporters. If you want to help them help me keep the site and its various podcasts and video casts alive, pitch a few pennies, heck, pitch a lot of pennies, into the hat at patreon.com slash the logbook, just like Kevin and Darwin and Mark and Javier have done. You can also support the site by buying t-shirts and other goodies from our store at redbubble.com slash people slash the logbook, or by ordering just about anything through our affiliate links at thelogbook.com slash store from places like Amazon and eBay. Retrogram is a production of thelogbook.com. <laughs>